preachable. Um, themes we've seen before, and it's kind of loosely connected. And there's a little section here that, that just seems a little bit, you know, what am I going to do with, with that? Um, and yet, as we, I studied, I, I found, as I always do, that it is the living Word of God, and there is uh, deep insight and deep thoughts and deep instruction in this for us in this time as the body of Christ and as the people of God in the world. And so we trust in the sufficiency of God's word as we come to uh, what seemed on the surface to be a little bit of a less preachable text this morning. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. So these uh, verses come right on the heels of what we looked at last time, uh, I guess it would be two weeks ago now, uh, where Paul... uh, uh, it was talking about our citizenship being in heaven and how we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who uh, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And he urged us then to follow his example. Um, and so that brings us then to chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown... Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. You may be seated. The call to discipleship has an ominous ring to it. Jesus said, the world will hate you because of me. He said, they will cast you out of synagogues. They will despise you and mock you and persecute you. In this world, he said, you will have trouble. To be a disciple of Christ in the world is is to endure opposition as we walk the narrow road that leads to life. And we encounter this this opposition, it seems, that at every turn and in in many different areas and and facets and aspects of life, we encounter the opposition in class discussions at public schools where our allegiance to Christ is treated with contempt and scorn. We run into it on social media increasingly, it seems, where the values we promote are ridiculed or censored. We feel it in conversations with colleagues and friends whose lives revolve around the things of earth and who see no value in the things that we treasure. And we see it in social systems and in media platforms where corrupt practices are celebrated and where moral evils are promoted and where prideful self-exaltation is again and again and again proclaimed. To be a disciple of Christ is to be at odds with the people of the world. And, and so the question that I want to explore with you this morning is, well, how then do we live as disciples of Christ in this world of opposition? And, and, and this, again, just to give you a reminder of the context of Philippians, uh, the letter of Philippians was written to uh, the believers in the church at Philippi, living in that context of constant threat of persecution and, and opposition all around, and no less than The Philippians, though the situation and the circumstances are not the same, but we too, as the people of God in this world, are a people who face 
opposition. So how do we walk that narrow road that leads to life? In our text this morning, Paul gives us uh, two commands that show us how to live as disciples of Christ in this world that is marked by opposition. And both of these commands are echoes of what Paul has said earlier in, in his letter. So these are themes that we've already visited and already have seen, but they are important enough that, that Paul wants us to hear them again. And, and again, to hear them in a little bit different context with a little different twist to it that will speak to us in a little different way. So as we strive to live as disciples of Christ in the world, Paul calls us to these two things, to stand firm and to be of the same mind. So first, Paul calls us to stand firm. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And that command to stand firm is a command that evokes military imagery. So this is language of, of military combat against enemies that are intent on our defeat and our destruction. Uh, we see the, the same language all throughout the New Testament. We see it in the words of Jesus in Mark 13 when he says, Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. We see it in James, who is writing to believers facing opposition and persecution, just like the, the believers at Philippi. And James said, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. We see it in Peter, who is writing to believers about facing their devil, their great opponent. And he said, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. To stand firm is an expression that Paul uses again and again throughout his letters. We encountered it back in chapter 1 of Philippians where Paul said, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that manner worthy of the gospel was standing firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. He said to the Corinthians, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. And this is just a very small sampling. Paul, uh, Paul's letters again and again and again, you find that, that language of standing firm. Perhaps most famously, he uses this language uh, when writing to the Ephesians about their battle against the spiritual forces of evil. And he said to them in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For a struggle, he said, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, he says it again, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, he says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And he goes on to list the whole, all the different pieces of, of spiritual armor that we are to wear as we stand firm against the enemy's schemes. So to stand firm is, is to endure against opposition, to endure against enemies, against those who are opposed to you, who are threatening you, who are intent on your defeat and destruction. Uh, when I was in elementary school, one of my favorite games to play uh, outside during, during recess time was a game that we called Cream the Carrier. It was a very, very simple game, and it was a very rough game that I'm sure would not be allowed in schools anymore today because it almost always ended with a number of bloody noses and scraped up knees, occasionally you know, a dislocated finger or two. And so it was one of those kinds of games, and the game, like I said, was a very simple game. The way it worked is you had one ball, 
uh, use like a, a rubber ball, like a you know volleyball size or something like that. So one ball and, and a whole group of boys, you throw the ball up, and whoever catches the ball is the carrier, right? Simple name, simple game. Everybody else tries to cream the carrier, which means that you do everything within your, pow- within your power to bring that person, to knock that person to the ground. Whatever you have to do, you knock that person to the ground. And it was always a rather terrifying thing to be the carrier, to be the person with the ball, because you would have like 15 to 20 other boys with hunger and violence in their eyes that are just doing all that they can, their level best, to knock the living daylights out of you. And your only job as the carrier was to remain standing. That's it. And that, that was the whole game. <laughs> and we would do it for, until the bell rang. We'd do it again and again. Your only job as a carrier is to remain standing. You could try to outrun the opponents. You could remain standing any way you can. You can outrun them. You could try to sort of uh, you know, fend them off. You could have, have the ball in one arm and, and try to knock them down with the other arm. Whatever, whatever you had to do, your job was to remain standing. The moment that you were taken down to the ground, that round was over, you throw the ball up, somebody else catches it, they're now the carrier, and you go and tackle them. And that game, I think, is a little bit like what Paul is talking about here in Philippians. To stand firm is to endure against opposition. To remain standing in the face of all kinds of forces that are intent on knocking you down. And it means persevering. And all the things that Paul has been talking about in the previous chapters of Philippians, it is to keep shining like stars in a world darkened by evil. It is to keep holding firmly to the word of life, even when the rest of the world despises its teaching. It is to keep pursuing Christ as the supreme treasure of the universe, even when those around you see him as of little to no value. It is to keep pressing on toward that goal of maturity in Christ, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. It is to keep on living as citizens of heaven in a world that is so far removed from heaven's values. That's what it means to stand firm. And it begs the question of us then this morning, are we doing that? Are we standing firm or are our feet slipping? In our thinking and in our theology, in our doctrine and in our dialogues, are we firmly planted in the unchanging truths of Scripture or are we swayed by so many other voices that are drawing us away from the word of life? You see, we stand firm by by tuning out those other voices and letting the word of God prevail. We stand firm by refusing to compromise. We stand firm by by feeding our longing for the better country, as the writer of Hebrews says. We stand firm by delighting in God's word and meditating on it day and night. We stand firm by worshiping together and praying together. We stand firm by walking boldly in the way of, of grace and truth. As we strive to live as disciples in the world, I pray that we may be followers of Christ who stand firm. That's the first command that Paul gives. The second command 
is to be of the same mind. We see the command itself in verse 2, where Paul uh, shifts from addressing the whole church to singling out two women in the church. And just get that in your heads for just a moment, because remember, this letter was read publicly to the entire congregation, read out loud to the entire congregation. And so the, you know, the letter is being read, and all of a sudden he comes to this, this place where two women in the congregation, probably sitting there listening to the letter along with everybody else, are singled out. And what a sort of awkward moment that would have been. And so this is what Paul says. He says, I plead with Eudia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, we don't really know much about Eudia and Syntyche. We, we know that they were obviously part of the church at Philippi. We, we know from verse 3 that they had a prominent role in kingdom ministry, so they were probably respected members of the church at Philippi. Paul says of them that they contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So they appear to be well-respected women in the church at Philippi who played a significant role in working with Paul for the advancing of the gospel. And Paul's command to them, of course, implies that there, was, that there was some kind of conflict, there was some kind of rift or tension or disagreement, there was some kind of falling out between these two women, most likely tied into their, their, their kingdom service or their kingdom work, and it was having a crippling effect in the broader body of the church. And so Paul urges them to be of the same mind. And though it's, his command is addressed specifically to these two women, it has a broader application for all members of the body of Christ. And in fact, as we ponder what that command means, uh, it's really an echo. We have to go back to chapter 2, to, which will shed light and insight on what Paul is, has in mind with this command. So uh, it's an echo of what Paul said in chapter 2, where he said, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by being one in spirit and of one mind. And then he went on to identify specifically what that like-mindedness should look like. And he said this, In your, relationship with, your relationships with one another have the same mind as Christ Jesus. This is a favorite word of Paul in, the, in his letter to the Philippians. I think, I don't know my exact numbers, but I, he uses this word, this, this mind. It also can be translated disposition or attitude or mindset. Um, he uses it more often in uh, this letter to Philippians than any other letter. I think he uses it like 14 times in Philippians and maybe 12 times in all the other letters combined. And so it's a, a popular, a common theme throughout his letter, that of having this, this mindset, this disposition. And so in the context of Philippians, to be of the same mind is to have a Christ-like attitude or disposition in our relationship with fellow believers. And if you wonder what that Christ-like attitude or disposition is, Paul captured it so beautifully uh, for us in the very next verses of Philippians chapter 2, uh, in, in that Christ hymn. So in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. And then he goes right into that, that hymn, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, the highest of all beings in the universe, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage. But what did he do? He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Setting aside his own self-interest, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross for the salvation and well-being of others. It is the ultimate picture of this self-emptying, self-giving, self-denying 
sacrifice for the sake of others. That's what the mind or the disposition of Christ looks like. If you want to see the mind of Christ, you'll find it by looking to the cross. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what he means throughout the letter of Philippians when he's talking about having the same mind. So this is what it means to be of the same mind. It is to show humility and self-sacrifice in our relationships with one another. It is to value others above ourselves. It is to die to our own prideful thoughts and selfish ambitions. It is to subordinate our own personal agendas to the larger agenda of the gospel. In other words, it is to put into practice the very opposite of what we are by nature. For we are by nature self-driven, self-exalting, self-preserving, self-consumed creatures. When I was in college, one of the most uh, popular TV shows at that time, uh, was really at the height of its popularity, was... Uh, was the TV show Friends. It was either Friends or, I mean, not Friends, Seinfeld. So it was either Seinfeld or Friends. Those were kind of the two kind of competing for popularity when I was in college. And so, uh, especially in my earlier years of college, I, I would sometimes watch Seinfeld with my roommates uh, at college, whether around dinner or uh, taking a study break or whatever. And so it was one of the most more popular shows. Uh, if you grew up in the 90s or, or were, you know, Watching TV in the 90s, you probably are familiar with the TV show Seinfeld. And one of the characters on the show was George Costanza, who's uh, the bald guy with glasses pictured on the far right in this picture. And he was kind of this sort of this, this, this hopelessly self-consumed, just self, you know, kind of a pathetic sort of character on the show. And in one of the episodes, uh, it stands out so clearly in my mind because it just captured so well, I think, who he was as a character, but also, in some sense, who we are. And so in one of the episodes, George was at a birthday party for a little kid. And so he's in an apartment that's filled with people, including his girlfriend and his girlfriend's elderly mother and a clown and then a whole bunch of other, a whole bunch of other uh, uh, little kids. And so he's in this, he's kind of mingling and it's this, this apartment filled with people. And as he's just kind of walking around mingling, he says, uh, you know, does anybody smell smoke? He's like, I kind of feel like I smell smoke. And so he went out into the kitchen where indeed he sees smoke in the kitchen, and the sight of that smoke just threw him into this panicked frenzy. And uh, this is his response. I have just a little gif, a little clip. Um, so if you've seen the show, you might, this might look familiar to you. But this is uh, George's response when he, when he thinks that there's a fire in the apartment. This is what he does. And it, it'll play through a couple of times. So as, as the, you can see from this little clip, uh, here's George trampling people down as he makes a mad rush to the door to escape. And you see him pushing kids out of the way, knocking the clown down, knocking an old lady to the ground as he runs to save himself from what he thinks is a fire. And like I said, that scene, I think, captures so well George's kind of pathetic personality. But it also, it, it, it puts on ugly display what our human nature is like. Because we may not, may not want to admit it, but there is something of George in every single one of us, isn't there? I mean, that may be an extreme expression of it, but that, but that, that self that, that, that self-tendency, that, that, that self-preservation, that putting self first, that, that lives inside each one of us to some degree. 
It comes most naturally to us to think of ourselves first and to put our own interests above the interests of others. And it takes constant work to to have it be the other way around. But that's exactly what Paul calls us to. The very opposite of what we see manifested in this scene from Seinfeld. Paul calls us to have this self-giving, self-emptying disposition of Christ in our relationships with one another. And that's what he means when he says to be of the same mind. And one of the reasons why this is so important is because personal conflict within the church is never just a private affair. You know, Paul wouldn't have named Judea and Syntyche in his letter to the Philippians unless their personal conflict was crippling in some way the whole church. And that's the way it goes. If you are in conflict with someone within the body of Christ, that conflict is never a self-contained conflict. It trickles over into the larger body and the larger fellowship, and it corrupts the whole system. Just like a toothache affects the whole person, so too tensions and conflicts among individual members within the body of Christ affects the whole body. I've seen that. Uh, more so this past year than probably any other year in my, or the last couple of years. In my work as a church counselor for Classis Wisconsin, I've seen this played out again and again in multiple churches. I've been involved over the last couple of years with churches that have been torn apart and crippled really beyond repair by interpersonal conflicts that were just, that were never reconciled. And, and in some cases, it started with just two people, two people that, that had a rift or had some tension, they had a disagreement, they had some conflict, and it just, it festered, and it wasn't ever resolved or reconciled, and it led to, to sides, and it just contaminated the whole body until it got to the point where it was like gangrene spreading throughout and, and diseasing to the point of death, this entire church. This is why reconciliation is so important. This is why there is an urgency to resolve interpersonal conflicts within the body. In fact, Jesus conveyed the sense of urgency in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, when he said, If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. I mean, this is an astounding thing for Jesus to say, because he's basically saying, you know, you're going to the house of God to worship but if, there, if you remember that there's, that there's some tension or some thing that needs to be resolved or reconciled, stop what you're doing. First, he says, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. That's how important it is. That's how urgent it is to attend to the needs of reconciliation. Paul commands us to be of the same mind in our relationships with one another, to have a Christ-like disposition of humility and self-sacrifice, subordinating our personal agendas to the larger agenda of the gospel. And again, it then begs the question of us this morning, is there someone within the body with whom you need to be reconciled? Is there a fellow brother or sister in Christ, part of the the church of Christ, with whom you need to be restored? Are there conflicts that need to be resolved? Is there someone in your life with whom God is calling you to be of the same mind? If so, then don't delay in taking steps to reconcile. 
For the conflict is not only damaging to you personally, but it is crippling to the life of the church. As we strive to live as disciples in the world, I pray that we may be followers of Christ who are of the same mind. So these are the two commands that Paul gives in these verses. This is how we are to live as disciples of Christ in a hostile world. We are to stand firm in the face of opposition. And we are to have a Christ-like disposition, a self-giving, self-emptying disposition in our relationships with fellow believers. But if that's as far as we go, then we will have missed the most important part of this text. Because Paul doesn't just give us these commands and then send us on our way to go live them out by our own power. He instead reveals what I would call two foundations of grace on which these commands stand. The first foundation of grace is in the repeated phrase, in the Lord, attached to each command. So Paul says in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. And then again in verse 2, be of the same mind in the Lord. We're not called to live out these commands by our own strength. We're called to live them out in the Lord. To stand firm in the Lord means to endure on the basis of all that God has accomplished for us in Christ, which is why Paul always begins his letters with the indicatives of grace. This is what God has done for you in Jesus. This is who you are in Jesus. Now, in light of that, on the basis of that, live it out. It's always the same pattern because the indicatives of grace always precede the imperatives of faith. To stand firm in the Lord means to endure on the basis of all that God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. I think it was James Boyce who said the call to stand firm is not a call to conquer new ground, but a call to defend the ground that Christ has already conquered. I love that, and it's a paraphrase, but it's something along the lines of that the call to stand firm is not a call to conquer new ground. It is a call to defend ground that Christ has already conquered. That's really what we see in Ephesians chapter 6, isn't it? Where with all this, this, this putting on the full armor of God, it's, it's not that so we can go out and conquer new territory or conquer new ground. It's to defend the ground that Christ has already conquered. He's already triumphed over the enemies. Now we are to put on the full armor of God to defend the ground that he has claimed. And to be of the same mind in the Lord means to treat others with self-giving humility, not based on our own agendas, our own thoughts, and our own agreement, but on the basis of our common bond in Christ, who humbly gave himself for us. Have you ever experienced how hard it is to be angry and hateful to someone when you come together with them at the cross? How almost impossible it is to have bitterness and anger and hatred in your heart towards somebody when you come together with them? under the cross of Jesus Christ, when you see how much you have been given and forgiven in Christ, you almost can't help but to give freely to others. And so what is really needed of us is not simply to try harder to be more Christ-like in our relationships, but to surrender ourselves again and again and again to Christ, for it is Christ who will do in us what otherwise would be impossible. That's the first foundation of grace. The second foundation of grace is is help from within the body. In verse 3, Paul addresses who he calls his true companion, and much ink has been spilled, 
speculating on who that true companion is. And they, 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 you know, all kinds of different ideas. Some say it, might, it was Paul's wife. I'll just leave that there. Uh, some say it was uh, Epaphroditus. Others say it was, it was Timothy, none of which really makes sense. And some say that it was uh, 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 that the, the first word where Paul says, uh, the actual, the, was translated true companion. They say it should be a proper noun. So it's a person named Sisgazos. Again, a lot, all kinds of speculations about who this true companion is. The reality is nobody knows because Paul doesn't tell us. But whoever this true companion was, Paul says to him or to her, I ask you, my true companion, to help these women. So the women don't have to go it alone. They will have help from within the body of believers, and so do we. Paul brings out the idea that we are all in this together in verse 3, by, by stringing together a whole series of Greek words in verse 3 that all begin with a prefix sin, S-Y-N, which means with. And he just stacks them all together, and I'm going to run through them really quickly with you. So all these words that start with the, that letter sin, meaning with. Here's a, a whole list of the withs of verse 3. The word true companion, uh, synzygos, means in yoke with. The word uh, help is the word sin lambano means to hold with. The word contend, sin athleo, which is where we get the English word athletic, and athletics means to struggle along with. And the word co-worker, synergos, where we get synergy, means one who works with. The reason I share these with you is just so you can see this excessive stacking of that word with, which drives home the idea that we are in this together. That we are made to be a with one another people. And there will be help along the way. And this is why, we keep saying this, but this is why discipleship groups are so important. This is why moms groups are so important. This is why youth group and cadets and gems and covenant friends and all our other ministry groups are so important. This is why relationship building events like something as simple as having s'mores around campfires are important. This is why gathering for worship is important. It's in community with fellow believers that we are empowered to stand firm and that we have the mind of Christ formed in us. We do not have that if we are on our own. It has to be in community with fellow believers. And the beautiful gift, the beautiful foundation of grace is that then we have help along the way. It is only out of these indicatives of grace that we can live out the imperatives of faith. And so we say in the words that we're about to sing, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home, and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response, we praise you, O Lord, for these foundations of grace on which these two commands stand, to stand firm and to be of the same mind. 
Well, Lord, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer, I pray that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts and minds and show us, O oh Lord, those ways in which we have failed to stand firm as you have called us to. And those ways, O oh Lord, in which we have not been of the same mind with a fellow brother or sister in Christ. O oh Lord, bring it to our minds and, and hear our prayers of confession and repentance and renewal and recommitment, O oh Lord, to stand firm in the race of faith and to be of the same mind with fellow believers. Oh, Lord, what a gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Oh, Lord, may you so live in us that we are empowered and renewed to stand firm as we face opposition. And to have the mind of Christ formed in us, the self-emptying, self-giving humility in our relationships with one another. And may we then be the beautiful bride you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.